the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World Episode 40, Reconquista, The Early Years This episode focuses on the earliest stage of something called the Reconquista. In the year 711, the Iberian Peninsula was invaded by the Umayyads from across the Strait of Gibraltar from Africa. The Iberian Peninsula was dominated by the Visigoths at this time. The Visigoths were originally a Germanic peoples who migrated to the Iberian Peninsula from Eastern Europe during the final century of the Western Roman Empire in the 4th and 5th centuries. The Visigoths were originally pagan, like all of the Germanic tribes were originally, but they were Christianised like many of the Germanic tribes and other barbarians to the Romans. Earlier in our medieval story, we told the story of the Visigoths during a dedicated episode, and at the end of the episode we told the story of how Tariq ibn Ziyad of the Umayyads invaded the kingdom of the Visigoths, which resulted in the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula. However, the Umayyads were not able to take control of the entire peninsula. One of the last Visigothic stands was led by a man called Pelagius, who had to flee to the far north coast of the peninsula and fend off the expansion of the Umayyads. He did this successfully and therefore saved one small portion of land from the Umayyads and that portion of land is what we refer to as the Kingdom of Asturias. The establishment of the Kingdom of Asturias in the Umayyad Iberian Peninsula is seen as the beginning of the reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula by the Christian nations, something that would take 781 years to achieve. This reconquest is retrospectively referred to in the Spanish tongue as the Reconquista and was seen as a test by God of the Christian nations. Much of the mountainous land of Asturias was not really a high priority for the Umayyads. The fact that they were unsuccessful in their quest to keep it meant that a Christian presence that became the new home for those religious relics inherited from the Visigoths still existed, and its existence meant that a new platform was established from which the Reconquista could be actioned. The Umayyad expansion didn't just stop at the Iberian Peninsula, but also extended even further north into the territories of the Merovingian Franks, before the Franks defeated them in the Battle of Tours in 732, and then they pushed the Umayyads back down south to the approximate modern border between France and Spain. In the Middle East, the Abbasids had revolted against and taken control of the Umayyad Caliphate in around the year 750, 
the Umayyads in the newly formed Iberian territory of Al-Andalus were not interested in recognising the Abbasid Caliphate and they decided to declare themselves as an independent emirate with their capital city at Cordoba. The emirate of Cordoba was neutralised in the north of Spain in the late 8th century. Emperor Charlemagne of the Franks had firm control of the Pyrenees borderlands and now the Kingdom of Asturias had established itself across the coastal lands of the north with many Christian monasteries established. However, the Kingdom of Asturias was not wholly harmonious, with local chieftains competing for each other for wealth. The same can also be said of the Emirate of Cordoba. So as we discovered during our episodes on the Crusades in the Holy Land, the Christians and the Muslims were often battling against themselves on a local level. With the overwhelming speed of the Muslim expansion into the Iberian Peninsula, many Christian families would become stranded in Cordoban territory. These Christians would have initially felt threatened by the new Muslim regime. But over time the generations would become more familiar with Umayyad and Berber families living alongside them. Inevitably the two cultures would become integrated with each other. Some Christian families would convert to Islam and vice versa. The Christians in Al-Andalus and the consequential Emirate of Cordoba would develop a distinct fusion culture and language called Mozarabic. The Muslims of mixed descent in this same area are often referred to as Muladi. The Kingdom of Asturias would support a rebellion within the city of Pamplona, inflamed by the Basque leader Inigo Arista. Pamplona was under Frankish rule, but the city had had a history of trying to do its own thing regardless of the will and intention of either the Franks or the Muslims. Arista would become a king in his own right and rule over a Basque Navarrese kingdom centred around Pamplona. This kingdom of Navarre would exist for over a thousand years and although there were both Jews and Muslims within the kingdom, it was predominantly a Christian kingdom. Asturias expanded its territory to dominate the northwest corner of the Iberian Peninsula by the turn of the 10th century. The kingdom was made up of different emerging counties. To the east and on the border of Navarre was Castile. Along the west coast from the northwest corner were Galicia, Portugal and Coimbra. The Kingdom of Asturias would move its capital from the city of Oviedo to the city of Leon in the year 910. And this would be the first recognition of the kingdom being named the Kingdom of Leon, a natural evolution of Asturias. Cordoba. The strengthening of the Christian counties in the northwest was assisted by the weakening of the Emirate of Cordoba in the early 10th century. Cordoba still represented the superior area of the Iberian Peninsula, however. In the year 912, Abdurrahman became the new Emir of Cordoba 
and ruled as Abd al-Rahman III. Abd al-Rahman was selected by his grandfather to succeed him. He was young and energetic and seemed to be just the man to put down the internal rebellions that were weakening the emirate. Abd al-Rahman would make regular campaigns against the rebels in his land in a bid to re-strengthen the realm. It took him 20 years, but due to his relentless pursuit of the rebels and their forts, Abdul Rahman was able to destroy all of the major rebellions in his lands. Abdul Rahman declared that Cordoba was now a caliphate in its own right, with no loyalty to the other caliphates of the Fatimids and the Abbasids. During this time period, the Christian lands of the north were harassing the Cordoban lands and Abd al-Rahman had to pay some attention to this. But it became a considerable problem for him when Ramiro II became the new king of Leon in 931. Ramiro was a highly capable military commander and decided to conduct military campaigns into Cordoba in response to Abd al-Rahman's aggressions towards the Christian territories. The climax took place at the Battle of Simancas in 939, which resulted in a Leonese victory. Fortunately for Abd al-Rahman, internal conflicts within the Christian territories prevented Ramiro from capitalising on his victory and creating further problems. Abdul Rahman was succeeded as the Caliph of Cordoba by his son who ruled as Al-Hakam II. The Caliphate was in a strong position by this time thanks to the work of Abdul Rahman. Cordoba had become the largest and most developed city of Western Europe and Al-Hakam had benefited from high-quality education. Despite Cordoba distancing itself from the weakening Abbasid Caliphate centred in another highly developed medieval city in Baghdad, Al-Hakam's academic knowledge was celebrated throughout the Muslim world. Despite Cordoba successfully defending its secular borders from the Christian territories in the north, it also had to defend its southern borders from peoples such as the Fatimids in Africa. Cordoba was known for its religious tolerance towards both Christians and Jews that characterised the Islamic states that existed in Al-Andalus throughout the medieval period. This tolerance is referred to as the convivencia, but this portrayal of religious tolerance is also challenged as somewhat mythical by some scholars. On al-Hakam's death in 976, the caliphate passed down to his son, who ruled as Hisham II. Hisham was only 11 years of age when he acceded, which meant that he would need to have a regent, and the effective regent would be his Hajib, a man known to history as Al-Manzur. Under Al-Manzur, a new wave of outward aggressiveness replaced the highly cultural nature of the caliphate that had existed under Al-Hakam. Al-Manzur campaigned relentlessly throughout his tenure. He would attack the highly regarded Christian cities of the north including Cuella, Pamplona, Barcelona, Leon and Santiago de Compostela. Al-Manzur 
also consolidated the Kordaman gains made in North Africa at the expense of the Idrissids, who had dominated Moroccan lands for the previous two centuries. Fitna The 10th century was a great period for the Umayyad rulers of Al-Andalus, which was recognised as the powerful caliphate of Cordoba. The Christian kingdoms of the North and the Islamic dynasties in North Africa struggled to contain the Cordobans. Fortunes were about to change, however, during the 11th century. Al-Manzur died in 1002 and he would try to ensure that his sons would inherit his power. The only problem with this was that Al-Manzur was simply a military statesman and not the actual caliph. His first son was able to continue where his father left off, but his second son was deposed in a coup and ultimately murdered. The ineffective caliph Hisham II was deposed, and the entire caliphate descended into a fitna that saw it disintegrate into a number of taifas. The fitna is an Islamic word for a state of chaos, typically a civil conflict. The taifas were independent principalities that made up Al-Andalus. By 1031, the Caliphate of Cordoba was no more. The Christian kingdoms and the counties of the north had also chosen to become involved in the fitna as and when alliances and challenges suited them. With the disintegration of the caliphate came an opportunity for the Christian realms to expand their borders. The illegitimate son of Sancho the Great, King of Pamplona, was Ramiro, who defeated his brother after his father's death and created a realm that would become the Kingdom of Aragon in the year 1035. It would be the kingdoms of Aragon Castile and Leon that would benefit most from the collapse of the Caliphate of Cordoba. Just a couple of years later, and Ramiro's half-brother, another son of Sancho the Great, called Ferdinand, became the King of Leon. The modern capital city of Spain is Madrid, but Madrid was a town that existed in the shadow of another highly important city called Toledo during the medieval period. Madrid is 40 miles northeast of Toledo. After the collapse of the Caliphate of Cordoba, the city of Toledo was being ruled by a Berber dynasty called the Dulnunids. King Ferdinand of Leon imposed himself on the Emir of Toledo, a man called Al Mamun. Al Mamun agreed terms with Ferdinand, quite possibly to protect Toledo from conquest. So Ferdinand targeted other Taifas instead, including the Taifa of Valencia. Ferdinand attempted to besiege the city of Valencia, but he was ultimately unsuccessful. Ferdinand had to retire back to Leon due to illness in 1065, and he would die in December of the same year. Al-Mamun of Toledo would quickly move to unify the Taifa of Valencia with his Taifa of Toledo. Toledo was now the largest of the Taifas. Ferdinand had made provisions before his death to split his lands between his three sons, Sancho, Alfonso and Garcia. Sancho, the eldest, was granted the Kingdom of Castile, 
but he was quite disappointed with this share, believing that he should have received more. One of the most respected young knights of the kingdom of Leon was a man called Rodrigo Diaz of the village of Vibar. Sancho would commission Rodrigo to fight for his cause to improve his Castilian realm. Sancho would gird Rodrigo with the belt of knighthood, ceremonially recognising him as an elite warrior. One of Rodrigo's first postings for King Sancho II of Castile was to attack the Muslim city of Saragossa. Rodrigo's success in Saragossa in 1067 was highly celebrated and it was contemporarily chronicled that Rodrigo was the major factor that influenced this victory. There is some haziness about how Rodrigo gained his famous epithet but the chronicler dubbed him by the name Sidi which in Castilian translates to my lord. The word Cid was often attributed to successful military leaders, but in Rodrigo's case, the name has become his personal historical reference. El Cid As mentioned before, King Ferdinand had opted to split his lands between his three sons. Sancho was granted Castile, Alfonso was granted Leon, and Garcia was granted Galicia. Saragossa was paying tribute to Sancho in Castile and there were similar arrangements in the other bordering Muslim taifas to the Christian kingdoms. In the previous century, the Muslim Caliphate of Cordoba was dominating the politics of Iberia. Now that the Caliphate had fallen apart, the roles reversed. The taifa of Toledo was a tributary of the Kingdom of Leon and the taifa of Badajoz in the west was a tributary of the Kingdom of Galicia. However, there was a huge amount of distrust between the three brothers, sons of Ferdinand, and this led to their Christian kingdoms entering into conflict with one another. El Cid remained loyal to King Sancho of Castile, but he would have also been all too aware of the fact that conflict would cause a general weakening of the Christian states. El Cid had made a promise to King Ferdinand to try to be an effective arbitrator between the three brothers, but this would have been an impossible task. However, he did build up a highly respectable military reputation as a legendary knight, with stories of him single-handedly battling successfully against whole groups of men. Alfonso of Leon turned his attention west towards the lands of his brother Garcia in the early 1070s. Garcia would be defeated and he fled south, leaving Alfonso to conquer Galicia. But very soon afterwards, Sancho attacked Alfonso from the east, which culminated in the Battle of Gompajera in 1072. El Cid was to play an important role in the final exchanges of this battle, which resulted in a victory for his king, Sancho. Sancho would compare the abilities of El Cid in battle to the same value of those of a hundred men. 
Alfonso fled into exile south to the Taifa of Toledo. But Sancho's glory was short-lived when a rebellion resulted in his assassination. Alfonso returned to take the thrones of all three kingdoms, Galicia, Leon and Castile, where he would rule as King Alfonso VI. High amounts of suspicion was rife in the Christian realm, so Alfonso approached the highly respected El Cid and requested his loyalty, which El Cid would only return if Alfonso publicly announced that he did not murder his brother Sancho. Alfonso's announcement was tantamount to a penance. El Cid was fundamentally a Castilian in the eyes of the Leonese nobles, and Alfonso's announcement was seen as a humiliation. But such was the esteem by which El Cid was held in that Alfonso felt it necessary to do this to keep the peace. Alfonso apparently had El Cid's loyalty, but there was a deep mistrust between both men. Alfonso's power would increase though as the kingdom of Navarre to the east was conquered and split between the two kingdoms of Leon and Aragon. El Cid was granted by Alfonso the hand in marriage to the daughter of the Count of Oviedo, Jimena Diaz. The Taifa of Seville in the southwest of the Iberian Peninsula was also now a tributary of the Kingdom of Leon, and Alfonso would post El Cid in Seville as an ambassador to keep things on the level and to keep him out of the political scene in Leon. El Cid would help to defend Seville against its enemies, but would plunder a lot of booty and create a lot of fuss within the Islamic Taifas that some would deem to be unnecessary and destabilising. Even though El Cid would send a lot of the stolen wealth back to Alfonso in Leon, many of the Leonese nobles felt highly uncomfortable with the situation and pressurised Alfonso to cut El Cid loose. And he did just that in the early 1080s. El Cid appeared to have overstepped his mark with unauthorised raids into lands and cities. El Cid was one of these warriors with an insatiable desire to do battle and win, and he would not wait to be told what to do. The disassociation of El Cid from the Kingdom of Leon meant that anybody could now commission his knightly services for themselves. Alfonso was now stylizing himself as the Emperor of Hispania, a reference back to the classical Roman province of the peninsula. We can tentatively refer to this as being synonymous with the term Emperor of all Spain. So we start getting an insight into the concept of the modern anglicised name Spain, with its original reference being to the Christian kingdoms united under the rule of Alfonso VI, otherwise referred to in history as Alfonso the Brave. Alfonso was ambitious and was always looking to expand his influence and his wealth. In the meantime, El Cid was providing his services somewhat indiscriminately to the highest paying ruler, regardless of their religious leaning. This led to El Cid serving the Taifa of Saragossa against the Kingdom of Aragon, and if you recall, El Cid had campaigned against Saragossa 
very early in his career, while in service to King Sancho II of Castile. At the Battle of Morella, El Cid was a commander of the Islamic Taifa in their successful defeat of the Christian Aragonese. It seems that from sources, Saragossa would go on to do battle with Alfonso's forces in Leon, but there is no mention of El Cid within them, so we don't know if he played a part in those conflicts. The Almoravids The Idrisids were the rulers over the Moroccan lands of the Maghreb when they were subjugated by the Cordobans from across the Strait of Gibraltar, but the collapse of the Cordoban Caliphate meant the end of centralised rule in Morocco. The Almoravid dynasty that emerged inland on Moroccan soil was named after Dar al-Murabitin, which was a specific law code of Islam that became popular at this location. The followers of the law code were mainly Berbers from differing tribes and they would move to take control of the western Maghreb from the 1040s and by 1062 they would establish a capital city at Marrakesh. Even though their dynasty was founded on their own Islamic doctrine, the Almoravids still recognised the Abbasid Caliphate. With the collapse of the Gordoman Caliphate, the Islamic Taifas of the Iberian Peninsula were gradually being subsumed by the Christian kingdoms and most notably the Kingdom of Leon. The Taifas were desperate for support and reached out to the Almoravids to prevent the Christianisation of Al-Andalus. The big catalyst for the Almoravid advance into Al-Andalus was the actions of King Alfonso VI of Leon during the 1080s. This self-proclaimed Emperor of Spain was being asked for support by the newest ruler of Toledo, Yahya al-Qadir, who was facing the aggressions of rebel factions. Sensing weakness in Toledo, Alfonso made high demands of al-Qadir that he could neither afford nor have an inclination to honour. So Alfonso besieged Toledo and the city fell to him in 1085. The Taifa was added to the impressive kingdom of Leon and now the neighbouring Taifas feared complete Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula. So this is why the Taifas called for help from the Almoravids and the Almoravids were quick to respond, and not least of all because of the attraction of the opportunity to expand their own imperial reach. The leader of the Almoravids was a man called Yusuf ibn Tashfin, and he would answer the call for help from the Taifas of Al-Andalus. He crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and headed towards the Taifa of Badahoth. When Alfonso heard of this arrival, he would appeal to the king of Aragon, Sancho Ramirez, for help. Sancho agreed and the Christian coalition headed towards Badajoz to meet the Almoravid-led Muslim coalition. Alfonso's forces were vastly outnumbered and both leaders realised this, so Yusuf allowed Alfonso to agree either to pay a tribute or to convert to Islam. Neither of these things happened and so the Leonese forces attacked 
the Almoravids. The resulting Battle of Sagrajas was a fierce one, but inevitably it was won by the Almoravids. It seems that both sides suffered from heavy losses. Alfonso maintained control of Toledo, but the Christian expansion was now halted. While the Almoravids maintained a presence in the far south of the peninsula, while they recovered from this heavy battle. Valencia. The loss caused Alfonso to contact his estranged ally, El Cid, in order to help him to keep the Almoravids at bay. El Cid agreed to support Alfonso, but over time it became clear that there was such a deep distrust between the two with Alfonso seemingly convinced that El Cid had ambitions of allowing Alfonso to be assassinated, so that El Cid himself may become a ruler in his own right. So El Cid left Alfonso to take care of himself, while he would try to find a new battle which could improve his own personal stock. El Cid decided that he would try to gain power in Valencia. Valencia is a city on the east coast of the Iberian Peninsula overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. El Cid had managed to capture a couple of castles in order to appropriate the wealth that could enable him to look after the army that he was amassing for the job. The Count of Barcelona to the north was called Berenga Ramon II. Berenga Ramon opposed El Cid's ambitions and decided to challenge him before he could take control of Valencia, and this is likely because Berenga enjoyed some political power over the eastern Taifas and was concerned that he might ultimately lose out. The climax between Berenga and El Cid took place at the Battle of Tebar in 1090. El Cid's army was hugely outnumbered, but he was conniving enough to tactically outfox Berenga, and this resulted not only in a victory against Barcelona, but also the capture and imprisonment of Berenga. El Cid's victory at this battle only served to enhance his already immense reputation. His influence in the Taifa of Valencia would make him so popular with both Christians and Muslims who believed in his abilities and had faith in his success. As a knight, El Cid would always justify his actions by pledging that he was in service to an overlord and he would state that he was in service to the ruler of Valencia, Yahya al-Qadir, who we mentioned previously as the ruler of Toledo when King Alfonso took control during the previous decade. Now, al-Qadir was instated as the ruler of Valencia. By 1092, the Almoravids had sprung back into life from their humble presence in the south of the Iberian Peninsula, following their battle with Alfonso at the Battle of Sagrajas back in 1086. The Almoravids viewed the Taifas of Al-Andalus as corrupted by the Christian and Jewish presence and the subsequent Muslim tolerance of it. So Yusuf ibn Tashfin, the Almoravid leader, decided that he should conquer the Taifas and restore his much more strict brand of Islam on Al-Andalus. Yusuf quickly annexed the southern Taifas, including the large area of Seville, 
before he would set his sights on Valencia. The chief magistrate of Valencia, Ibn Jahaf, gathered an uprising of pro-Almoravids to overthrow and ultimately execute Al-Qadir. This would create an anti-Almoravid uprising to get behind El Cid, the only man that they believed could regain control of Valencia. The uprising contained both Christian and Muslim representatives. Yusuf ibn Tashfin, the Almoravid leader, sent messages to El Cid, warning him not to dare enter the city of Valencia. El Cid made it quite clear that he was very willing to meet Yusuf on the battlefield. El Cid did return to Valencia, but this time it was to besiege the city. By May 1094, the rebel chief magistrate Ibn Jahaf surrendered to El Cid, and as a consequence, El Cid marched into the city and captured Ibn Jahaf. In the months after, Ibn Jahaf would be executed, likely being burned alive. El Cid would instate a bishop in the city, as well as Christianising the chief mosque of the city. He would rule over both the Christians and the Muslims of the city, but he would do so in the name of King Alfonso VI, probably to legitimise his own rule. As expected, the leader of the Almoravids, Yusuf ibn Tashfin, was not about to stand for this turn of events. El Cid mustered up all the resources available to him in order to be able to contend with the powerful Islamic Berber movement that were the Almoravids, led by Yusuf ibn Tashfin. Accounts report that the forces of Yusuf numbered in the region of 150 to 180,000. Many historians believe that this number has been enhanced for glorification purposes, with more realistic estimates being suggested at around 25,000. Still a considerable army though. El Cid's legendary status had been built around the fact that he was almost unbeatable in battle due to his ability to view his challenges laterally and outthink his opponents. Rather than wait for the arrival of the Almoravids and allowing them to besiege Valencia, El Cid would take his army outside the city and towards the advancing Almoravids. El Cid sent a small contingent of troops forward to sidetrack the Almoravids before launching a surprise attack with the bulk of his army on the Almoravid camp, therefore causing complete chaos and scoring an incredible victory against this seemingly indestructible force that had been taken over the south of the peninsula. This event is referred to as the Battle of Cuarte and took place in 1094 and further enhanced the already great reputation of the great military leader Rodrigo Díaz de Vivar, more famously known as El Cid. If we jump forward dramatically to the year 1102, eight years after the Battle of Cuarte, Valencia did indeed fall to the Almoravids and turned back into a Muslim city. By 1102, El Cid was dead, having died three years previous. El Cid 
died mysteriously in Valencia in his 50s. There is little to suggest that this was as a result of a battle, and it is a legendary story that his armoured dead body was propped up on the back of a horse and taken into battle to inspire the Valencians and strike fear into the hearts of the Moors, the collective exonym given to the Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula by the Christian societies, and very similar to the word Saracen, another exonym of Christendom to describe Muslim societies, especially those in the Middle East. El Cid's career is the career of the archetypal successful knight, considerable in battle and independently minded, but respectful of feudal politics nonetheless. He understood that despite his differences with King Alfonso VI, that he had a duty to protect his relationship with the king, his lord, just as he had done with his king's brother, King Sancho II, and his father, King Ferdinand I, before him. His career demonstrates that the modern temptation to portray medieval Christians and Muslims as mortal enemies of each other was much more politically motivated when conflict did occur. El Cid did not care about the religious identity of his subjects. He only cared that he maintained his own wealth and power and always recognised King Alfonso VI despite Alfonso believing that El Cid had ambitions to overshadow and belittle him. Whether El Cid did have ambitions to overthrow King Alfonso or whether he just needed to recognise King Alfonso in order to legitimise his own rule is a subject for debate. But in terms of his military capabilities, he is undoubtedly one of the greatest military leaders in history and a fundamental player in the story of the Reconquista. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast uh, about the earliest years of the Reconquista and up to the conquest of Valencia by El Cid. And next week will be continuing the story of the Reconquista by looking at one of the more pivotal battles of the 13th century, the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. And uh, that will continue the story. But uh, thanks for listening this week. And uh, let's move on to other stuff. The Ancient World Cup. 64 teams. There can only be one winner. And uh, it's uh, much more exciting than the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. So this is our competition. We vote for who we want to progress into the next round. Each week we have a match between two of the ancient teams. Uh, we're, we're currently down to the last 16 and we're, uh, we're eliminating half of those teams so that we're left with eight quarter-finalists. Now, last week's match was between uh, the Sumerians of ancient Mesopotamia and the Phoenicians, the, uh, the great trading colonies and, uh, and societies of the, uh, of the Mediterranean, uh, originating in the Levant and, of course, the precursors to the Carthaginians. Uh, so uh, the votes were all counted. We have 59 votes. So thank you very much for everyone who did vote. And uh, the winners uh, going through to the quarterfinals with 68% of the vote are the ever-popular Sumerians. So 
That will be uh, an interesting match. So you go through to the quarterfinals against the ancient Egyptians. Now, um, the ancient Egyptians and the Romans are among the two favourites to win this. I wonder how the ancient Egyptians will get on against the Sumerians. Will the Sumerians, um, with their own very, very early culture, uh, be more popular than the ancient Egyptians just because a lot of people, you know, su suggest that the Sumerian cultures advanced uh, earlier than the ancient Egyptian cultures. So it's a good debate that. So it's a good quarterfinal matchup. Uh, anyway, next week's match uh, will be between the Romans and the Minoans. Now, if you want to take part, just keep an eye on the History of the World podcast social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And it's also posted on Jenna Osborne's unofficial History of the World podcast uh, fan group. And that can be found on Facebook as well. So um, there's four places you can go to vote. And uh, just vote for your favourite. And whoever gets the most votes will go through to the quarterfinals. The Romans, of course... Uh, they speak for themselves, that society that was around and morphed for, you could even argue, for, for two whole millenniums. But um, fundamentally, the Romans we're talking about here are the classical Romans uh, who uh, started out as a kingdom, became a republic, and then ultimately became an empire and um, probably affected every one of our lives today um, just through their... Uh, just through their advances and technologies and uh, and the way that they um, nurtured the politics of Europe. And uh, they go up against the Minoans, who were the uh, who, who are described as the earliest European society um, of who we can sort of um, apply to history as opposed to prehistory. So the Minoans with their linear A uh, script, which we are yet to decipher, but, um, of course, um, very closely linked to the trading networks of the Mediterranean, of the, the Cycladic Islands, and uh, and uh, very much connected to the Greek culture with their great mosaics and the Palace of Knossos that you can still visit today. So the Romans versus the Minoans will be next week's match-up. And make sure that you visit our social media pages from Monday to get your opportunity to vote. Listener messages and reviews. Now, if you like the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, then you can. Just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. Those people who do sign up and make a monthly contribution get the distinction of being called a History of the World Podcast Illuminati member and... Over time, you can qualify for rewards such as shout-outs, uh, episodes on subjects of your choice, questions to be answered during the podcast episodes, and gifts including T-shirts, hot drinks, mugs, fridge magnets, key rings, um, plenty more on offer. So um, make sure that you uh, take a look and see what you can get on the Patreon website. Uh, we have three new Illuminati members to welcome on board this week, and they are Matthew Gebhard, Jeremy Bradley, and Davis K. George. So thank you so much for becoming a part of the family. Thank you so much indeed. So um, also, 
just worth mentioning, I would say, um, with Christmas just around the corner, you can buy that History of the World podcast super fan in your family or, or that friend who cannot stop talking about the podcast a gift through the merchandise um, link. So if you go to the History of the World podcast.com website and click on merchandise, um, you can go through and buy a number of uh, things that are branded up with the History of the World podcast logo for each of the last four seasons. So go and have a look and, and see if there's anything there that you might think would make an ideal Christmas gift for that History of the World podcast fan that you know. Um, worth uh, checking out, I would say. And, um, well, next week we're going to be going more Reconquista. We're going to be talking about the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa. Um, so um, until then, thanks very much for listening and be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.